It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome back to Signal Boost. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. It is Tuesday, August the 24th, and it's 8 o'clock on the East Coast. Joining us on the phone is one of our regular doctors, resident doctors, Dr. Syra Madad, uh, from the Netflix documentary Pandemic, which um, I actually watched before the pandemic, and so I was prepared, I suppose, in terms of uh, living through a real one. Good morning. It's great to have you back. Good morning. Thank you for having so, me back. So we, we're in a, a really precarious moment of the pandemic. I think every time we talk to you, that's the case. But I feel like this surge wasn't necessarily predicted, if that makes sense, right? I mean, I feel like the Delta variant, um, about six weeks ago, I first saw an article talking to my biologist dad about it. And he was like, this is very bad and I was like what do you mean he's like this is gonna be a really big problem and I'm like how so so just in the last like month or so can you um break down for us just what's been happening um like the delta variant went from a minority of of cases to the vet you know 90 percent of covid uh infection in the country and it went from being in certain pockets of the country to everywhere um, how did how did that happen? Well, I think the first is the only constant variable in this pandemic is unpredictability and change. And I think as we were approaching the summer months, um, we were looking at the number of vaccinations, the number of individuals getting inoculated, knowing that we're going to be close to ending the acute phase of this pandemic no, because we're having more people vaccinated. And so we were looking at the summer as kind of being, okay, a milestone where we can start to go back to kind of relatively life as we as we know it, no, but still knowing that the pandemic is raging on around the world and that we're all still unsafe until we get more people vaccinated. Um, and that variants, will gonna, variants are going to continue to pose a problem. The big change um, between now, uh, then and now, is the Delta variant. And, and I think as we all have been talking about in terms of wild cards, the Delta variant has asked, has been the wild card. And I think though the worst thing to, to also know about it is not only knowing that the Delta variant is much more transmissible, you're seeing more indications of causing more severe illness, um, but it's not gonna be the worst variant that we're probably going to contend with. And I think knowing that um, is, is a little bit of a, a sobering fact, knowing that we're going to have more variants that are going to pop up in the future that may be more virulent, that may be even more transmissible. You know, and we say that with this Delta variant being two to three times more transmissible than the original coronavirus, you know, that's, that's a pretty significant um, change in the trajectory of this pandemic. So that's the biggest change that we've seen in the summer months is knowing that we're dealing with a much more transmissible variant. And on top of that, our vaccinations also have essentially had plateaued for a while. There was a significant decrease in the number of people that were getting vaccinated. Even now, today, you know, as we're, uh, you know, as we're in this this month, we still have, 
you know, 85, 90 million Americans that remain unvaccinated. That's a lot of Americans that remain unvaccinated. And as we know, when we have vulnerable individuals in the population, the pandemic is going to continue to rage on. And that 80 to 90 million includes children under the age of 12 that can't get vaccinated, that we're waiting for a COVID-19 vaccine for. And as a parent myself of, you know, uh, you know, three children under the age of 12, I'm, I'm waiting for that my, myself. And so many of us are now contending with back to schools around the corner. How do we send our skill, you know, kids safely back to school? But the last part that I'll just say is let me just give you a quick update on where we are in this pandemic, knowing that what has changed is the Delta variant. We are now seeing, you know, obviously increased number of cases. We're now averaging, averaging about 150,000 new cases um, over the past, uh, you know, a few days. Um, that's been basically almost a 30% increase of the past 14 days. We're seeing uh, a num- more people get hospitalized. So right now, uh, as of this morning, over 90,000 Americans are waking up in hospital beds because of COVID-19. That's been about a 40% increase for the past 14 days. And our deaths are also increasing by, you know, over 70%. We're now seeing about 1,000 deaths, um, you know, per day, uh, you know, in the, in the United States. And so, you know, unfortunately, we are um, still in the middle of this pandemic, I was hoping that we would be end with the acute phase, but we certainly are not because of the variant, which has been the wild card. And so I think that I'm going to first say I feel for everybody. You know, it's you know we thought that this is going to be a better summer that we can kind of get past this this pandemic and still take precautions, but you know not um, you know be in that pandemic state that we were in over the past year and a half. But I think we just need to be humble. And this is just the truth. But this will end soon. And we can talk about what that end game will look like. This will end soon. But this we are in the middle of an infectious disease pandemic. And it has the upper hand. So it's yeah. just unfortunate. But we can control it. We have the measures um, that, that we need to, to be able to curb the spread and protect people. And one of the best measures is vaccination. And we can talk about that, too. Of what, what, what does vaccination do for people? So that's actually a um, a good place to go, because I'm sure that we've had um, this conversation on the show before, but I never want to ever assume that, you know, people that are tuned in right at the second are always listening every single day. Although I know we have a lot of regulars. So hello to the regulars. I, I always see your tweets and I appreciate it. Um, but one of the things that I talked to, my dad is a microbiologist. He's a biology professor. And so on Friday mornings, we, we talked to him about science questions. And so early on in the pandemic, we, we did this little sort of shorthand um, where I'd be like, COVID, the COVID vaccine is not a cure for COVID. Like it's not a, you don't take it and then now you, you're cured from COVID. Like that's not what a vaccine does. That's not what it is. And that's not this, how the science works. So this is a good moment to break that down what does the covid vaccine do for you and and why if you have not been vaccinated and you're listening to the show this morning should you get it as soon as humanly possible as soon as you can yeah well first the the vaccine is a preventative tool so it's not a tool to treat covid19 it's to prevent you from having the worst outcome um in terms of illness, hospitalization, and even avoiding death. And so there's two main things when we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. The first is it greatly reduces your likelihood of suffering from severe illness, suffering from going to the hospital and being intubated, requiring, you know, uh, you know, a lot of medical uh, and health care. Um, and then it helps avoid dying from this, you know, devastating disease. And it does that by decreasing your risk of severe illness by 25 times. 
that's a lot. So if you compare that to an unvaccinated person, and if you're vaccinated, it decreases your likelihood of suffering from severe illness by 25 times or 25 fold, right? And this is CDC data that has been published. The second thing that a vaccinated, uh, that the COVID-19 vaccine does for vaccinated individuals is not only does it decrease your chance of suffering from severe illness, but it also reduces your chance of even contracting COVID-19. And you're seeing a lot about breakthrough cases, and we can talk about that again in a moment, but it, it reduces your chance of getting COVID by, by eight times, right? And so COVID-19 in and of itself, when we look at the, the illness, when we look at the disease, people often look at, well, you know, I don't want to suffer from, you know, the symptoms that go along with the COVID-19. I don't want to go into the hospital, potentially even being intubated, um, require, you know, oxygen support. But that's just a piece of what this disease does. You know, we right. are learning much more. And we talked about this in your show previously of, of long COVID. And there are millions of Americans mm-hmm. and billions of people around the world that continue to suffer from the long term consequences of this disease. So not only do you want do you not want to get this disease because of suffering from, you know, the uh, the actual acute phase. But then there is obviously the phase that continues on. So the vaccine helps with all of that, uh, as we talk about breakthrough infections, and you're hearing more about that in the media. And the reason why first is because there's more virus in the community. When there's more virus in the community, the chances of somebody coming in contact that's fully vaccinated with that virus greatly increases. And as we know, vaccines are not foolproof, right? And you've heard that term many times before. No vaccine is foolproof in that sense, but it mm-hmm. does exactly what it's supposed to do. It accomplishes protecting you from the most severe outcomes. And so as we're hearing about these breakthrough cases, this is not something where we should be, oh my goodness, you know, I don't want to have a breakthrough case. Certainly no one wants to have a breakthrough case. But again, you are protected because you have this this mountain of antibodies that are in your body that are able to mount uh, an attack on the virus if you encounter it. And it helps you from, you know, suffering from the most severe aspects um, of this disease. And there's a lot more to go with it. But I know we have more questions. So I'll, 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 uh, I'll hand it back to you to, to continue no, it, on. But being vaccinated is really important. It's such a good explanation and it's helpful that we we take the time to go through it because I think there's a, so much misinformation out there about the vaccine and what it does and what it doesn't do. Um, you know, I think people were listening, unfortunately, to political leaders when they should have been listening to doctors and scientists. But here we are um, a year into this. And so we're trying to right the ship in terms of um, the news that we got yesterday. Um, Pfizer got full FDA authorization um, which we were talking to one of our legal experts earlier in the show about, um, you know, how this can facilitate more mandates by private businesses and companies um, now that there's full approval. Do you think that that's uh, on a public health policy level the best strategy? Like, are mandates something that public health officials recommend in this kind of in this moment? Vaccine mandates. Well, I think there's a few things. First, this is amazing news. It's a huge public health milestone to see, you know, the first mRNA based vaccine generally being approved. And on top of that, you know, uh, something for COVID-19 in the middle of a, of a pandemic. And so what this is just showing, and as FDA has mentioned in the press release, is that the public can be can feel very confident that this vaccine meets the high standards for safety, effectiveness, and manufacturing quality, 
the FDA requires of an approved product. And so as you talk about mandates, now what does the approval mean? And certainly, as you've mentioned, you're going to probably see many more employers, schools, um, you know, look at mandating the COVID-19 vaccine because it's not just, you know, when we look at the, the vaccine, it's not just protecting you, as I mentioned earlier, at the individual level, but it's also protecting those around you at the community level. And when you're looking at various settings, let's just say healthcare settings, right, where people are going in because they want to get treatment, they shouldn't have to worry about getting the COVID-19 vaccine from a, a healthcare worker. You know, they're going then there to seek, uh, you know, um, to be to feel better. And so there are many settings, I think, in particular, that should look at mandating the COVID-19 vaccine. Healthcare um, settings is certainly one, um, and that includes hospitals, long-term care, and so many other healthcare delivery sites. On top of that, I think anyone that really has a patient-facing role, right? And this could mean so many different occupations. And when I say patient-facing or human-facing or people-facing, right, that's probably a better word. I'm so used right. to saying patient. So when I say people-facing <laughs> roles, and what I mean by that is if you're interacting with the public on an ongoing basis, this could just mean that you're working in a retail store and you're a customer service um, sales representative, or you're a teacher or anyone that, again, has constant interaction and close contact with individuals, they should um, look at getting vaccinated. And one of the best ways is if they are, is, is mandating the COVID-19 vaccine. Because again, we don't want anybody spreading this deadly disease to other people, especially our children, right? Who, again, at yeah. the age of 12, remain vulnerable um, and unvaccinated. And as you're looking at the case numbers of pediatric cases have skyrocketed at an alarming rate. Pediatric ICUs are also being overwhelmed in many parts of the state. So we want to protect our most vulnerable. I mean, it's, it's such a good point in terms of, um, you know, getting to a place where, you um, we can feel confident in 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 the vaccine and that it's safe and that companies can implement it so that we can finally get out of this pandemic. But kids, so the the Pfizer vaccine is for 16 and older. Um, for children 12 and under who still can't get vaccinated at all, number one, how much longer is it going to take them um, to yeah. at least give emergency use authorization for a vaccine for children? Because I know a lot of parents, I'm sure you're included in this, yeah. um, are waiting for that so that they can, you know, feel good about sending their kids anywhere. Um, so my, I guess my first question is, if you have a kid under 12 and you live in a place where they don't mandate masks, should you reconsider sending your children into a classroom? That's my first that's question. A, yeah, and that's a great question. And, and in fact, what I'll do also is I, just, I have a publication coming out at Harvard um, on this actually today. And what it is, is I'm talking about as a parent under 12, you know, um, what am I doing to keep my children safe as I send them to back to school in person? And I think first, you know, we live in an environment where it's there's there's two aspects to it, things that you can control and things that you can't control, but you can yeah. absolutely and you must advocate for things that you uh, that you can control, but you should advocate for is ensuring that schools are keeping your children safe by the various layered mitigation strategies that CDC has laid out, like making sure everybody around your children are vaccinated, having testing, having good ventilation. But as a parent, I can't control that, right? I can't force my, my school to have good ventilation. I can advocate for it. I can continue to scream at the top of my lungs and say, hey, we need to continue to keep these uh, these uh, safe, these places safe that are inherently not safe, but we can make them safer. And as you're seeing in Florida, 
in many other states, you know, where governors are using politics instead of, you know, helping in public health, um, they are basically posing as an ob uh, obstacle to that. So it also first depends on where you're living, right? So if you're living in a state where they're just throwing caution to the wind, they don't care what's happening, you know, you want to look at your own risk tolerance and what you want to do. But the other thing is, what can I control as a parent? So as, again, as a parent that's sending two children, for example, back to elementary school in the coming weeks, what am I doing? What are things that I can control, you know, besides, again, ensuring that the school is remaining safe? And in my publication, I write down a few tips for parents like myself. The first is, obviously, when we talk about vaccination, I want to encourage anybody in my household that's eligible to get vaccinated, because as I mentioned, the two to do, the to two benefits, it reduces the risk, um, you know, obviously, of, you know, your, your child contracting the virus from others, and then it reduces the child if they get infected from spreading it in the household. The second is I'm sending my child with a high quality mask. It's no longer about sending my child with a, with a cloth mask like last year. We don't have supply chain issues. So I would encourage people mm to and parents to go out and find better higher quality masks for your children that they can tolerate that they can um, feel comfortable with and has a good fit and there's is a lot a more K in terms KN95? of kn95 does it matter if it's a kn95 or n95 I no, really so as long as it's a good respirator, one. right? And, and there are a lot of counterfeits, right? And so now, luckily, mm -hmm. you know, there are standards that are in place. So I would look at and do some research. And there are so many different articles now out there because you're not the only one. Yeah. We're all in the same boat. So many people right. have their expertise in this field have gone out and say, these are the best masks for children. So the first is a vaccinate those around your children that you have, you know, control over like your household, you know, two, wear a high quality mask for your children, three, rapid and periodic testing, right? And again, what this means is that you want to continuously test your child on an ongoing basis, maybe it's once a week, because you're living in an area with very high prevalence of community transmission, if your school doesn't offer it, you can just go to CVS, I have Binex in my, yeah. in my cabinet right now, which is a rapid test, I can tell if my child obviously has COVID-19 um, at this moment in time. So rapid and ongoing testing. The Second, sorry, the fourth is monitoring their health, right? So continuously seeing, are they showing any signs and symptoms of, of COVID-19? Have they been exposed to somebody that's positive? I want to keep my child home because you don't want to be the problem. You want to be the solution. You want to make sure you're curbing the transmission rates um, in your school. Creating a social pod, that's been important for me because when my child is going to be eating and lunch, they're going to be unmasked. That's a high-risk situation. And I don't want them sitting next to so many different people. So I am going to create kind of a, a pod of friends that can sit around my child that we all have similar risk toler tolerances. I know that their families are keeping safe. And so that's kind of their, their social bubble, their social pod during those high risk times. I wanna continue having them, you know, do good hand hygiene. And unfortunately, everybody has been throwing, you know, it's not so important to wash your hands. We wanna have better ventilation. It's not either or, right? We wanna make sure we continue to good, do good hand hygiene because um, while this is, you know, an airborne virus, they can still touch your mucous membranes. And there's so many other respiratory viruses circulating like RSV. So good hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette is really, really important. Monitoring what's happening in your community, staying up to date with public health guidance and promoting safer social activities, right? Limiting study groups to parents and, and students who are fully vaccinated. So there is a lot that us as parents that we can do, that we have control over for our children beyond what the schools can offer our kids. I feel like you're the first person that I've heard say, well, for number one, I did get that test from CVS um because uh a doctor i think it's dr uj blackstock tweeted a photo and was like everybody should have these in their house <laughs> um yes. it's just really smart yeah. to have them in your house there's two tests in each pack for 19.99 um right. in most places um and so immediately i sent my dad i was like you have to go get this from the store um so we can just have it but you're the first person that i heard say 
it would be smart to test your kids every week. Do you recommend mm-hmm. doing that? Like if you have a five-year-old who's going to kindergarten and, you know, you're sending them in their high-quality mask, but they're five, you know, they're six, they're little kids. They touch their faces. They're going to like touch each other and then touch their faces again. Um, I feel like the compliance is going to be different depending upon the age of the children. Um, Absolutely. In terms of, the, so like maybe every Sunday, are you, you would recommend testing your kids every week? every Sunday. I would say if you live in an area with substantial or high community transmission and your child is engaging in high risk activities, like they're going to school, they're coming in contact with so many different people, or you're about to go to a wedding, you're about to go to, you know, a setting with vulnerable individuals, it's good to go ahead and get and get tested. Or if you think you've been exposed. And so that once a week doesn't mean, for example, that I'm going to test just because I want to test. It also means because I'm in an area with high community transmission, I've Mm -hmm. engaged in high risk activities. And I want to know, you know, does my child have it because asymptomatic spread is very real yep. it continuously happens um, and so if you know your child for example may have it or has been exposed or they're coming in contact with so many different people it's just a good idea to test periodically and that once a week is not like you know it's it's you know it's not like that's kind of like the recommendation again it's based on your own circumstances yeah. and at your own yeah discretion but I, I just say periodically and I have those yeah. tests at my home too and I do test my children periodically if there's if I think that you know they've been exposed to a significant amount of people or if I'm about to take them for example uh, which I don't but if I were to take them you know to a setting where there's um, a lot of of people unvaccinated and you know there's there you know there's much more question of uh safety there that makes so much sense and i feel like you know that's such good advice i hope people um heed that advice because it feels like a proactive step you can take um Mm -hmm. in addition to like getting vaccinated and wearing masks because it feels like just an extra i mean i feel like what i've learned in the pandemic is like you can't do one thing you have to do all the things um because it's sort of the compound effect of doing all the things together that make you the most safe. Um, In terms of where you think we're going in this pandemic, I mean, I've read a few articles about the Lambda variant, but I don't really know anything about it. I don't, I mean, maybe that's because scientists don't yet know um, a lot about it, um, or they're still trying to do the research. What do we know and how concerned should we be? And are there other variants of concern besides the Lambda variant that maybe I didn't even read about yet? Yeah. So the Lambda variant, you know, is, is, is another kind of lineage um, of SARS-CoV-2, that virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, it was first detected, this variant was detected in August of 2020 in Peru, and it continues to circulate, you know, around the world in a handful of countries. And here in the United States, for example, you know, we continue to do genomic surveillance and genomic testing, and we're able to see how many cases of Lambda variant do we have. And it's not many, right? Right now, the the, the Unfortunately, our variant um, crowd is not very crowded because we have one contender, which is Delta, which is certainly taking center stage. But Lambda certainly is, it's not a variant of uh, concern yet. According to the World Health Organization, it's a variant of interest. And the reason why there's a distinction between the two is a variant of concern is that we actually have studies that show that this variant, like the Delta, for example, is a cause of concern because it's showing it's much more transmissible, it's much more virulent, it has an impact to diagnostics and testing and the like. The With the um, Lambda variant, which is a variant of interest, it's showing potential to be much more transmissible, much more virulent, having an impact to diagnostics like, you know, testing, um, 
um, and uh, has impact to monoclonal antibody therapies. So I think that for Lambda, what I'd say is we need to continue to keep an eye on it. We need to continue to monitor it. And as we're doing with all different variants, we need to continue to um, do gene sequencing. We need we want to have good surveillance in place to see if we start seeing uh, more significant um, number of cases, you know, that um, are worrisome, we need to continue to, you know, get on top of that as soon as possible. Is it, I mean, I think that we all now understand that viruses mutate and that viruses are constantly changing. And this is something that we, it's natural and it's something that we're going to have to be concerned about. Do you think that we are at a pace now where we can outrun the mutations, so to speak, with vaccination um, and I suppose natural herd immunity? Because I th- I don't think that, you know, third of the country, the, the, the 80 or so million, I don't think they're going to get vaccinated. So right. at this point, I feel like they're going to come into contact with COVID. That's how they're going to, we're going to reach herd immunity. Um, unfortunately, that means that a lot of people will get very sick and have long-term symptoms or potentially die. Um, but that's, kind of what the science is telling us so what does that mean for how much longer this is going to go on are we are we running fast enough to get vaccines and outpacing uh the variants so um it's definitely a complicated question because it's looking at it from a local lens it's also looking at it from a national lens and then international lens and if you're looking at it from highest lens which is international lens the variants are certainly outkeeping any pace of vaccinations that's going on around the world, um, which are only not are at the point where we can say comfortably that enough people around the world have been vaccinated for us to to stop the acute phase of this pandemic and to start kind of having this pandemic transition to being endemic. Locally and nationally, I think it's spotty as well. But I think what I'll say is that um, the, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, is here to stay. And it's going to be part of our daily lives, just like we have so many other infectious disease viruses that are part of our daily lives, but we've learned to live with it. It doesn't cause um, a significant challenge on our day-to-day lives. Like, for example, when flu comes around, what do we do when, when it's flu season? We get a flu shot and we make sure that we um, it, we continuously practice respiratory etiquette. If we're causing coughing, sneezing, we're going to cover our coughs and sneezes. If we're sick, we're going to stay home. We don't want to infect other people. We do these things for flu every single year. So how can we make COVID-19 more like something that we see, uh, you know, in the backdrop of we continue our lives? And that, that is what we're going to get into. And that's what we call this disease being, or this virus being endemic. But the way it's going to get endemic And when we talk about this virus becoming endemic is that it's not going to pose a problem in terms of it's going to cause significant, severe illness. It's going to cause a high rise in hospitalization and death because that's where we are right now. We want to get out of that. And we talk about endemic, meaning that is something where it's going to be a nuisance, but it's going to be something where people are protected. So, for example, if I have, for example, the flu shot like I take every year, if I come in contact with the seasonal flu virus, yes, I, you know, I may have the sniffles for a period of time, but it's not mm-hmm. going to, you know, uh, flat out knock me out in, in that sense. Right. Right? Um, right. And and then, so I think what we want is that we want a more people to be vaccinated because when they do come in contact with this virus, as it's part of our day to day life, it's not going to cause severe illness. We can continue on with our daily lives like we normally do. So that's why vaccination is so important. Um, and so the people that are not vaccinated, they're going to then, as you mentioned, contend with the virus itself, which is going to get them sick, maybe cause severe illness cause them to be hospitalized and even cause them to to die from this disease. And so I think at one point or another, 
you're going to come in contact with this virus because it is here to stay. So the best way is you want to have that immunity built up ahead of time. Um, so that way, when you do come in contact with the virus, that you have this mountain of antibodies um, that can mount an attack faster and it's not going to cause severe illness. And that's what we talk about the future of this uh, virus becoming endemic and not having to continuously do those public health measures like uh, like, uh, you know, masking, distancing, um, and others. It's when we can suppress the virus, um, you know, well enough where we have good immunity in the population that when we do come in contact with this virus on, on a day-to-day or an ongoing basis, it's not going to cause that problem. It is so helpful to have you here to explain all of this. Um, but also it's very sobering to hear that, especially when you think a little bit too long about the need to vaccinate the world because, as long as there are unvaccinated populations, there will be variants, which includes the world. And yeah. so when I, I try not to think about that too long, because then I then I get sad. Uh, Dr. Syra Madad, thank you so much um, for being here as always. And please stay safe. Um, you've been thank so you. helpful um, in this whole year plus pandemic and helping us understand how to keep ourselves safe. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.